Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Shola Deshaki. I'm the lead coach and founder of the Smart Stewards and the Smart Investment Club. I am excited about this session, and I'll be talking to one of, of our lead coaches um, at Smart Stewards. Uh, Mayawa Olusoji is the founder of uh, Power to Know. Uh, he is a knowledge enthusiast and is very, very, very um, enthusiastic about teaching financial knowledge, uh, personal finance, and all of that. Mayawa, how are you doing? Good to have you. Good morning, Kochi. Thanks to be on here this morning. What a wonderful day. Thanks, man. Awesome. awesome. So I would like for us to talk about um, asset allocation. I know we have discussed this, you know, um, a lot of times we have conversed about, you know, the types of assets that people can invest in. We have talked about uh, asset allocation uh, and diversification um, as a topic. I would like for us to just touch on it. And then there's a particular image I would like to share and for us to dissect. So from your own point of view, what do you think asset allocation is and diversification? Uh, it's... It's, it's something that it's, um, it's kind of dynamic in the sense that when we talk about asset allocation, people by default think of diversification, but there are two different things. Asset allocation is how you actually apportion the funds you have for investment purposes, how, you, how that goes out into various classes in terms of, in terms of investment. While diversification is how well diversified in terms of you are. You can actually be well diversified in one class. An example, you could go into equities and say, you know what? I just want to stick with stocks and it was stocks here. And I want to stick with, let's even take it down to mutual funds. And you could be well diversified in terms of you could go for, okay, I'm going to go for this segment of the market. I'm going to go for this segment of the market. So it's, um, it's been able to, for people to understand that whenever you hear asset allocation, it does not necessarily mean it is diversification, but you can actually be well diversified in the way you allocate your assets. That is that that to me that's the quick summary about it. So sometimes you, you could you could not be, you could ask, you could be well diversified and not well, and your your asset is not well allocated. Right. You know, right. getting the balance right. Whereby okay, I've split my. As my, 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 the funds available into different ports and within those ports, I'm well diversified within them. So that is, that is the mix of both. Awesome. So an example that comes to mind for me is um, if you imagine a plate in front of you uh, and um, asset allocation can be likened to you having carbs on the plate, right? You have protein, you have fat, you have fruits and vegetables and all of that on one plate. So you have the various uh, aspects of nutrition on your table, uh, on your plates, I mean. And then now diversification is now you narrowing down in proteins. Let's say I have proteins and then what kind of proteins am I eating? Am I doing beef? Am I doing chicken? Am I doing fish? I think that's a very brilliant example to kind of explain what allocation is versus diversification. So uh, let's say I am allocating my assets to equities. I am doing cash and cash equivalent. I'm doing real estate. Now in equity and stock, I now decide that I am going to buy 
equity and stocks of a particular kind of industry, or I'm going to do stocks of emerging markets, I'm going to do stocks of local markets, I'm going to do stocks of technology, uh, of the technology industry and all of that. So I think that pretty much uh, uh, differentiates uh, asset allocation from uh, diversification. Do you agree with that analogy though? Absolutely. I think in terms of um, keeping it simple, there couldn't have been any simpler way to explain that. And I totally agree with you. Though that makes me hungry just thinking about that, seeing, seeing that colorful ball you have in front of you, in front of you there. And one of the things we they used to teach in the UK is the colors. You know, when, when you think of how well you well fight, when you think of the colors on your plate, that tells you, okay, you're having a bit of this, a bit of that. So when the color is missing, you have an idea, something is missing there, the green is there. The yellow is there, that is there. So, you know, so Kochi, you've nailed that spot on. I couldn't have anything more to add. Awesome. So I think asset allocation is something we must all consider as uh, new investors, as upcoming investors, as veteran investors, because, um, you know, it, it's really important to have uh, a bit of each kind of asset class in your portfolio, of course, needless to say that the asset classes that we have would include fixed income securities, would include uh, cash and cash equivalents, you have um, real estate, you have equity, and of course you have derivatives. And apart from that, you also have um, uh, alternative investments. I think uh, digital currencies is beginning to gather a lot of, of interest locally and uh, internationally. A lot more people are you know, getting to understand the dynamics. I used to have a bias, okay, for digital currency, for cryptocurrency, and for Bitcoin. But in recent times, I, I'm beginning to kind of, you know, glean knowledge, glean wisdom, you know, from the experts, because I really would want to build a portfolio that is well diversified, a portfolio that is well allocated, and a portfolio that would stand the the test of time. So I have an image I'm going to share, but before we go into that, Maya, what do you think about digital currency and um, what not? Digital currency, like um, like it or not, you know, you know, revere it or not, don't feel comfortable about it, don't understand the mechanics of it, it is here to stay. It was just like when the internet of things took off in the in the 2000s and the people were saying, oh no, me, I'm scared of internet, this or that. You know, after a while, it's it's the it's a juggernaut. It's the ball is rolling down now. So it's either you come along, if you stay in the way, it will wipe you. If you can imagine PayPal, just PayPal in terms of PayPal just accepted, you know, just signed up to take cryptocurrency. PayPal is one of the basic foundation of financial transaction. Well, I live in the UK. In the UK, you cannot ask three people who do not know PayPal. So, and I think it's the step in the right direction. And JP Morgan, I was reading last week, JP Morgan Chase, which is one of the biggest banks in the world, is actually just created its own crypto. And what does that tell you? That tells you that the, the fear around it, it's, it's, it's been demystified. And I think it's a matter of control. It's, it's a beast whereby the regulators could not really control it. And that is why it's been demystified. And like it or not, I've studied the trend. You know, I only just got into crypto in the last four or five weeks myself. I've known about it. I've, I've brushed it aside. But, you know, when you get that nudging that it's time for you to understand this too, because that will be the future of payments. 
you know, and so I started studying it. And if you see the strain, the, there's been, there's been the, you know, the, the whole, one thing about currency is it has to be able to hold value. And that's been the argument all along that, you know, crypto has not been able to hold its value. But when you study the last 12 months, it's actually been steady. And when it's, when, and whenever it falls, we've not seen the fall besides what we saw in March when everything in the world fell. We've not seen that drastic drop. It's been, it's been fluctuating and as, as of today. We're looking at around 10,600, there are about 10,400. So it's, um, I'm jumping on the bandwagon. I'm, you know, dipping my feet in there. I'm not diving straight in, just dipping my feet in there, trying to understand the play around with a little bit of change I can afford to lose so that I understand the mechanics on, of how it works. And I think, um, and I heard that, you know, Smasher was actually bringing something on to educate, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's members about it. And it's high time we, we don't have to like it to understand it. We don't have to participate in cryptocurrency to understand how it works. But it's something I would advise almost um, almost everybody to make sure you have a basic knowledge to know how it works. It's not left for you to decide. I know how it works, but it is still not for me, just like some things are not for some people. But don't say it's not for you because you don't know how it works and you've not been able to demystify it. It's not rocket science. It's just one of those things where anything that is not so tangible, we get so scared of it. And we've moved away from the world of tangibility to the world of in terms of in terms of concepts. So that's my take on it. It's here to stay in whatever forms it takes, because I don't think it's what's going to be eventually. But this is the this is the start of it. Eventually, the butterfly will, will emerge from this. Awesome, awesome. Like you said, uh, sometime soon, we would be having uh, a cryptocurrency platform, a company in Africa, you know, come around to talk to us about, you know, the dynamics, the basics of uh, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And I, for one, look, you know, forward to it because I am hoping that my bias would be destroyed, kind of. And even if I am not ready to invest, I you know, would be able to embrace the necessary level of knowledge and interact with it and then decide going forward um, about what, what to do. So you are saying that, or you are thinking that uh, it, 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 it's a good one to, to have as part of your asset portfolio, right? Yeah. 100%. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so confident. It's something whereby you, I think you've, people, a lot of people have missed the boat once when it started. And then there was a time it dropped, which it was a second opportunity. But this time around, before the big guys jump upon this, and before you know it, the value starts going in the region of 200, 300,000, 400,000. It's a good time to, just like investments, you don't put all your, like we're talking about uh, in allocation. If it's just a little bit of whatever it is in there, and then you now begin to grow it. You know, my approach is do the cost, the dollar cost averaging in everything I do, whereby so eventually put a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, and then if one falls and the other still works. So, if it, and crypto averaging is, to, is applicable. If it's just, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's $10 a month, you know, you could just put in there. $10 will buy you lunch. If it's $10 awesome. a month you have, put it there and then you watch it grow. Awesome. Okay, um, let's go to the meat of this conversation. I would want for us to look at this image and kind of dissect it, okay? Uh, somebody sent this image, or rather I picked it up from the internet, and it kind of aroused my, um, my interest because we have been talking about asset allocation, we have been talking about diversification, and this image really comes handy 
Now, uh, the title is What Assets Make Up Wealth? A look at asset uh, distributions based on network tiers. Now, so for those who may be watching this or those who may be listening to this podcast, uh, I'll just want for you to kind of, you know, imagine it, especially those who will be listening to the audio. What this me- means is that, you know, different asset uh, classes have been kind of um, uh, broken down based on network tiers. Uh, for those watching the video, you can see that, you know, for those who have a net worth of 10K, those who have 100K, those who have a million, 10 million, 100 million, and a billion dollars, and what they have, you know, put their assets into. The various asset classes are liquid, primary residence, vehicles, retirement, life insurance, uh, mutual funds, stocks, fixed income investments, managed assets, that is trust, real estate, and business interest. Okay, Mayowa, uh, we're looking at this at this screen, and uh, you see that the way assets are distributed across the different network tiers differ. Uh, a typical example for somebody that has a tank in network has so little in business interest, but for somebody who has a network of one billion dollars has so much in business interest. You know, I mean, the, the gaps are so wide and I would like for us to, you know, talk about it. What, what can you deduce from, from this image we are looking at? Thank you very much, Koshi. I think the first big question which tells you there is, you cannot get to the, it, what I call the big boy level is anything above the 10 million bound. You can only attain that at a business interest level. What does that tell you? That tell you working nine to five will never, from this graph, interpreting this graph, what it's telling us in this, this heat map, he's telling us that is you cannot get to that level working for somebody. That is what it just tells us straight away. And when you look, when you look at it from the start, it's, it, it's amazing to see that what the 10K band tells you there is, you can imagine, look, look at the percentage of your primary residence and your, and your vehicle in terms of vehicle is seen as an asset, which it's, it's, it's something which, which I could always, you know, we could always have an, you know, a discussion about is, is a vehicle an asset or a liability? You know, it's an asset because you can resell it, but something that the value keeps going down, that's more of a liability, but they've actually been able to put it in here at this stage. And that is just, that is a difference. And you can see the more wealth you begin to accumulate, after a while, you begin to see that the blue, you, you, what you really want there is, you want, you, on the spectrum level, you want to grow more of the blue, all the way going down and the others coming now. That's, that's is fine. Business. There is, yeah. So for those listening in by audio, the blue is business, right? Yes. So it, it's telling you, you, for you to attain, from, you know, even from one, from the $1 million, you can actually still, you know, be what $1 million working for somebody, to be honest, you can, it's, I've, you know, it, it has been several research that's been carried out. Um, one of the biggest ones carried out by Dave Ramsey, which, which they, they interviewed over 1,000 millionaires in America. And they found out that a big percentage of around 60 something percent were still actually, they were just, you know, they, they, you could still do a normal day-to-day job. If you're well-disciplined and you've saved consistently over time, you can still, you know, hit the 1 million band without having much of, you know, the business interest. But when you now come to the 10, 10 million band, you definitely, 
need to have the biggest chunk of your of your net worth is actually in your business holding. Right. Awesome. So, I mean, this this typifies what we see and what we read, uh, you know, about the net worth of some of the richest men in the world. Uh, you see that in 2020, Jeff Bezos crossed the 200 billion band, right? We know that the bulk of his uh, net worth is from his Amazon shares. Uh, uh, you, you hear about uh, Bill Gates and some of them. So I pretty much agree that um, your stake in your business would increase and improve your net worth significantly. But again, the question is, what is your business? I mean, what, what is your business providing? What is the value of your business? We know that a percentage, just one percentage of Amazon shares makes you billionaire already, you know? <laughs> uh -huh. So, uh, but uh, one thing I have taken home from this image is that business interests, having, uh, having a viable business, having a business that, you know, can fetch you so much money, like we, we, we see about uh, paystacks, uh, sorry, paystack. A few weeks ago, we realized that they were bought over by um, Stripe for, I think, about $200 million or so. Now, if the owners of Facebook were to sit down and analyze their net worth, I mean, you know what that comes to. But now that it has been sold, they are pretty much out of that, uh, out of control is um, out of their hands. Uh, again, we, we do not know the dynamics. Maybe they still have a bit of ownership. We really cannot see. But uh, uh, the, the lesson for me is we should strive and seek to build viable businesses that you know people would want to buy into and i mean it can significantly increase our net worth okay another thing that i see is quite high here for especially those in the one billion uh, band not exactly high uh, but it's just there because those in the hundred million band have more real estate investments than those in the one billion band can you see that myra you know so the question again is is real estate something you should have as a significant part of your portfolio? And, and the sub-question to that is, um, what, what do you think about real estate as a viable form of uh, investment vis-a-vis uh, -vis your own residence and all of that? Do you have, a, yeah. do you have an answer to that? Uh, so uh, Real estate is, um, I tell my friends, that I, I have this analogy, you know, regardless of your believers of how the world came to be, it is the same portion of land that we have when there were probably 100,000 people on earth. And it's the same portion of land we have now that we are 8 billion. When you go by the basic principle of economic supply and demand, it is only a matter of time when the real deal becomes real estate. Because when, when you have this, a fixed amount of land, but there is increase in population, Eventually, that means demand will always outstrip supply. That means the prices of real estate would always go up. Real estate is not one of these things you do over time, or, you know, overnight and expect. So there are sometimes you could have some deals in the UK here where you buy a property, you fixed it up, you flip it after a while, you know, you make the money. But if you properly go into real estates, you're looking at 10, 20, 30 years there is money to be made because real estate, it is almost 99% guaranteed. There is always increase. And why is that? It's just because 
there are more people on earth now on the same space we had ever since we've come to being alive. And there's gonna be, imagine when we're 8 billion now, in 10, 20 years, when we become 12 billion, what do you think would happen to the cost of accommodation, to the cost of a, you know, a, a piece of land? You can imagine if you, I, I, there's some, you know, I've dabbled a little bit into property here and there, and you could imagine you could buy plots of land for probably, you know, um, $100,000 here and leave it for, you know, a, a couple of years, you know. Even if you buy, people say, yeah, what if you have to time the market? If you're patient enough with property, it will eventually pay off. And if you actually see what happens, when you get to the 1 million band, you know, you, you have a sizable, you, you have a sizable chunk there in real estate. And when you even get to the 10 million, you still have a sizable. But when you not get to the 100 million, and that, that is when the dynamics begin to change a little bit in terms of it's been reduced. But when you not look at it at the 1 billion, you know, we're talking of something substantial here. If what you just have there is 10% or probably just 5% of 1 billion, you're still talking about hundreds of million of dollars. And what that tells you there is for it to actually appear on there, there is something in real estate. And like I always tell people, one thing you cannot miss in your portfolio is real estate. It's just because one, you have to live somewhere yourself, number one, and it's either you're renting or you own the property. Number two, inflation would always come. But one thing about property there is it is we all need somewhere to live. We might not all need somewhere to work. We can work where we live, but everybody needs an abode. And that is where real estate comes to play. And I always say it's the only asset class that's got real in front of it is the real one. So any day, any time, I am a fan of real estate coaching. Awesome. Good, good. Uh, one other significant difference I see, um, you know, between the 10K, 100K band and the 100 million and 1 billion is that uh, people at the lower tier hold a lot of liquid, right? Uh, and they have much of their portfolio in primary residence and vehicles, okay? Um, as against those in the 1 billion range. Um, does that mean that more often than not, those that are still on the lower cadre of wealth building and creation hold more of cash, right? And they hold more of their portfolio in primary residence um, as against uh, real estate. They have just a very, uh, a very small chunk of their portfolio as real estate and they have vehicles. Now the question is, yes, in the world of personal finance, uh, a vehicle could be an asset. In accounting, a vehicle is actually an asset, but I think it's a depreciating asset. But in the real world of investing, even when you buy a Lamborghini, uh, the, the question is, does the value appreciate over time? Uh, you know, those are some of the differences I have seen. Um, at the lower cadre, people hold on to more cash. Their primary residence stands on, uh, it, it's a large percentage of their portfolio as well as vehicles. And then you have their retirement and pension. I, you know, I, I think generally and summarily, the way we think or the way people think at the lower cadre is totally different from the way, you know, the more wealthier people think because they are like primary residence is just a very small percentage. I, I know the story of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett has been living in the same house for a number of years. I mean, his own, uh, uh, he, he really doesn't care, he lives a 
a, a moderately frugal life because he just wants his basic needs to be met. His lifestyle is very simple, but then he's got so much in his business interest in the Berkshire, uh, what's the name of the company again? And then it was, yes, and a bit of uh, uh, stocks here and there. So for me, I look at this and I'm like, those in the 1 billion KDA, 100 million KDA are willing to take more risks. So they do not hold as much liquid. They are either pumping their liquid cash into their businesses or into other you know, asset classes. Uh, the primary residence is um, exactly not as, as, as weighty as compared to what they have in, in their business interest. Okay, so as we grow on our journey to financial wisdom, uh, freedom rather, and as, as we embrace financial literacy, we should be able to embrace more riskier endeavors, right? Um, those things that really mean so much to us might not be the, the, the key things when it comes to building wealth. These are some of, the, some of my summation, uh, you know, looking at this, at this, uh, at this image, okay? Uh, as we wrap up this particular uh, episode, what will be your final words, Maya, in terms of allocation, in terms of diversification and all of that? Thank you very much, Coach. Could you, do you know something I just spotted now in terms of, um, do you know equity, they've split it into two mutual fund and stocks, and you could always, you can, most, both of them are usually, you know, should be in the same port. But when you put them together, the stocks and the mutual funds, when you, I, can, I noticed when you get to the $1 million band, it started increasing. Even at the, at the billion, at a billion dollar band, it's still, it's still, it's still a significant portion of the wealth. But when you now go go to go to the top of it, it's quite a fraction. That means, like you said, the mindset of people at the lower end of the spectrum, it's more about immediate consumption and satisfaction. And when you put primary residence together and vehicle together, it reminds me of what Kiyosaki said in his book: your primary residence is not an asset. It's a liability because it's not putting money in your pocket. And I think for the purpose of this graph, that is why they've split your primary residence from real estate. So that tells you, you can see that someone at the bottom end of the spectrum has got almost 60% of their worth in their primary residence and the vehicle they drive. And those are two things that actually not bringing them any income at all. So it's a matter of now when we think of asset allocation is what do I need to invest? What's my strategy to start with? And that is the way I would advise people to, to, to go into it. Those just jump and say, yeah, I want to put my money here, money there, be strategic about it. And when you talk about strategy, strategy is long range. Look down 20, 30 years down the line and say, okay, where exactly do I want to be? And then map out your journey. And then when you've mapped it, that doesn't mean that's the end of it. You can always tweak and fix things. You can always review, tweak, fix, and move on and, and, and go. But you have something that is guiding you. If you have a strategic view of your asset allocation, it's allow, it helps you in decision making, whereby if I buy this stock now, you know, I'm not expecting an immediate return. It's a good business. And I know over time, Technology, one of the examples in which Warren Buffett always says is, he said one of the things they look at there is, what, what can they invest in that technology would not really change much about it? And he gave an example of Coca-Cola. 
I don't think technology will ch change the way we drink. We, we drink. It's not going to change that, not in the nearest future. So it's looking and saying, okay, how am I going to allocate funds that I have to different classes of assets? And then you begin to review them as time goes on. I, I, to me, that my take on it is, is, is being strategic about how you decide to allocate your funds, Kochi. That's my take on it in terms of look long-term. And also, if you really want to be financially free, you need to have a, well, uh, it's not a need to have a business, but for you to actually get into, some, into, into, into the 1 million level, you need to have business interest. Right. So you either start your own business or you partner with somebody and make sure the products and services that you're offering are things that people need. Uh, and of course, uh, a reminder that well building is a marathon and not a sprint, okay? A lot of us get caught up in you know, the need and the desire to quickly build wealth. And that's why we would always fall victims of um, get rich quick skins and uh, you know but um, as we go on in some of our episodes uh, as we discuss some of these very pertinent financial um, issues I believe that uh, our listeners and people will view our conversations will learn the basic things uh, that they need to embrace on their journey to financial freedom. Thank you Maiwa this has been quite insightful um, I look forward to you know, reviewing my personal portfolio uh, to see the asset classes, uh, you know, to see those things that I really call my assets and be sure that they pass the test and that uh, my house, my cars are not significant portions of my portfolio. Uh, and I look also forward to diversifying properly, even within the asset classes so that um, I can you know, cannot take a cue from what these worldly guys are doing. I am a worldly person as well, you know, so don't get that wrong. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> I see you some other time soon. All right. Thank you very much for this session. I hope to catch you some other times then as well. Thank you, Kochi. Have a nice day. Thank you. you God bless.